uh, coming coming out today. I feel like there is so much uh, right here, Lord willing, that we might get all the way through the doxology today. Then next week, um, again, Lord willing, we would be in more of the application of what we've seen for the last, I imagine it feels like about six years to you. I think it's just been like 13 months of uh, how long we've been in the Romans. So um, the application, not like there hasn't been a lot of application before this, but um, but chapter 12 through 16, um, again, glorious, but um, more in the applying it. And man, I feel like there's so many um, great verses in there today. But uh, today we don't want to rush through 25 to... Um, 32, but 33 through 36 has reminded the three of us, and Josh is out, he, uh, he's pretty sick today, he says, so um, that's why we're, we're missing Josh Krause, but, um, and we want to pray for him before we start too, and others, but uh, this 33 through 36 has just reminded us so much of Scott's situation, especially as he expressed on Thursday. Um, and so we, there will definitely be a chance when we get to that for, for y'all to express any time. And when you read this, how does that remind you of how God's taken care of Scott in this last um, three or four months um, as well? But Grant, would you pray for us? Maybe read 25 to the end of the chapter and, um, and then pray for us and we will um, we'll go to work. Okay. And verse 25. Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for a passage such as this, um, and the privilege of being able to gather as a local body and open it in our own language and discuss um, your word made plain to us and father thank you for the example of scott um, and all that you have worked in him and certainly father we are missing josh kraus today i pray that you would strengthen him through this sickness and that his body would be able to uh, recover quickly and that he would rejoin us soon and father i pray that our discussion today would be fruitful and that it would impact um, how we live going forward and i pray this in jesus name amen amen Thanks. You might remember that we have been warned, and I almost think I have uh, under, maybe appreciated or not thought nearly enough. I know I haven't thought nearly enough about how the Gentiles who have been grafted in, right for salvation, 
Um, now we're warned against boasting. You see it in verse 18. Take you back uh, a little bit. But do not be arrogant um, toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Um, then let me read all the way to 20 because there's arrogance uh, there that we're warned against them too. Um, that you will say branches were broken off that so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. That's the Jews. But you stand fast through faith. But do not become proud, but fear. And so, um, you know, now there's a warning against being conceited here again. So boasting, arrogance, um, conceited, we have no room for any of that. And I think we would know that, but I almost think it sneaks in. At least I was really convicted by that is to just think, um, I've known the Lord since I was a little guy, I believe, and just take it for granted and I feel like uh, you almost can become conceited about it or boast about it or just feel like, hey, wait a second. Why does everybody else not get this? Or how, how can it be that people are missing out so much? And there's just kind of this, um, I, I do almost think in a, a foundation of, of arrogance or apathy toward how great the gospel is. And how amazing it is that God has gripped any of us. And just some of those great truths from uh, chapter 5 or chapter 6 or chapter 8 even, that um, it's, it's remarkable. And I think that once we get to the doxology, um, it changes our mind from being kind of man-centered to more God-centered. And so certainly in salvation, um, we need to guard our hearts against uh, this voice was tremendous on this there's four things that he said we need to make sure that we remember as gentiles gentiles believers have not replaced jewish believers permanently one reason not to be uh all hoity-toity about this number two the gentile church is not the culmination of god's uh dealing in history right there's more to come and we're grateful and excited for that number three we're not something special I like that. You know, you feel like that. And uh, and so it's nothing because of us. And again, we get to our doxology, which we're not in a hurry to get through these other verses, but the doxology is so good and so rich that we can't get wait to get there here today. And then other people who are not like us um, are not hopeless, right? If right now that they're an unbeliever, this is not a hopeless situation for them. So Kind of want to humbly give a, a defense of verse um, 26 there, and Carter's going to help us, but um, just because this one tends to be a little controversial, we are not going to necessarily um, get all of this um, decided today in a, uh, a very thorough way, but lest you be wise in your own sight, verse 25, I do not want you to become unaware of this mystery, brothers, a personal hardening that has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Okay, so as of yet, it seems like that fullness has not come in. All the people that will come to love and know Christ, that he is called. Those that are called are justified, remember, from chapter 8 and then verse 16. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. Now, I probably didn't even realize all the controversy that that phrase or the, the disagreements. It seems as though 
that all, if we're just going by the words there, that all probably doesn't mean every single um, believer. Um, this was, um, Bruce says, it doesn't refer to every single living Israelite, but a large number of Jews. I know that Tyler's got me excited about um, Jews that will come to love and know Christ from his time in Israel. And uh, so we believe that there will be a large number that uh, are saved before the end. And, and very grateful for that and very excited about that. Israel. Again, Calvin believed that uh, it was referring to um, really the church. Again, in chapter 9 to 11, especially in 9 to 11, but really all through Romans here, he has used Israel as ethnic Israel. So I think we just have to hold hermeneutically to the idea that he's really talking about ethnic Jews here when he says Israel, all Israel will be saved. And then I didn't even realize that this was controversial, and it doesn't seem like it to me, but Schreiner wrote how now numbers of scholars are saying they will be saved um, in a different way than, than we are. They would be saved, that Israel could possibly be saved um, in the way, kind of as the in the Old Testament sort of way, in a different sort of way. And that seems like that doesn't hold any water uh, to me, that they are going to be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, just as Romans has expressed so much. In fact, that's a whole theme of Romans. So you would just say, um, that we believe that that's, that's coming up. Again, a lot of uh, different views on that, a lot of um, controversy um, I, even there. But God has not rejected his people nor allowed them to fall beyond recovery. Carter, you've loved this, uh, these few verses here. Tell us what you've, you've gleaned. Yeah, this point in Romans, I think the question has been, is now, is there a future for ethnic Israel? And um, so that would, so is God going to work on behalf of the Jewish people again in history, in the course of redemptive history? And Paul has been laboring the point about his uh, about his fellow kinsmen according to the flesh that the fall that their fall and their rejection of Christ has led to us being incorporated into the family of God into the kingdom of God. So um, and to demonstrate this, he like in our last passage he. Um, compares uh, the inclusion of Gentiles like wild olive branches into the uh, gr being grafted into the root. And if the rejection of the Jewish people means blessing and wealth of blessing for the Gentiles, how much more will their full restoration mean? And Paul begins in verse 25 by talking about a mystery. And as we know in Paul's vocabulary, he's not talking about a mystery that is uncovered by a team of detectives and some some novel that we all like to read um, in Paul's vocabulary mystery just refer it simply refers to those things which were once hidden and those things which are now revealed in uh, in God's word which God has cl clearly revealed to us now and if we look in verse 25 Paul says lest you be wise in your own sight I don't want you to be un unaware of this mystery brothers so Paul here in verse 25 doesn't want the Roman believers to be ignorant because Paul knows just how dangerous ignorance is. And Paul knows that ignorance is destructive to godliness and growth in godliness. 
I mean, the whole point of Scripture, why God has given us this massive volume of breathed out word is to, um, he, want, he desires for us to grow in maturity and to grow in our understanding of the things which He's laid out for us in Scripture. So He doesn't want the Roman believers to be ignorant. He wants them to be knowledgeable people. He doesn't want them to be without knowledge. Um, and so He takes the time to lay out these things before them because it does no Christian good just to seek comfort in ignorance and to remain stagnant in knowledge. You, we're always chasing after a greater knowledge of Christ and a greater knowledge of who God is because in our acquisition of that knowledge, we are made more like Him. So Paul is urging the believers, look, please don't don't rest and seek comfort in ignorance. Just I want, I'm laying out this mystery before you so that you'll grow in knowledge. And he takes the time to lay these things out before them lest they be wise in their own sight and be content in their own conceit. And like Mr. Jerry was saying, uh, rest in their own opinions rather than the revelation of God. So with this in mind, Paul moves on. Unless you, unless you be wise in your own sight, I don't want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Now, just pay close attention to what how Paul describes the hardening. He says a partial hardening has come upon Israel. So that, I mean, I mean it's self-evident to say that the hostility of Israel toward the gospel and toward Christ is not permanent. So what Paul is saying here is that this is not the end of the story for Israel. God isn't simply going to push them adrift out into the sea to perish. He's going to take up their cause once more again. So in short, this is not the end for Israel for God's covenant people, not spiritual Israel, but God's covenant people, Israel. And in verse 25, when he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, Paul is saying, in other words, that the hardening of Israel has been not for nothing. It's not meaningless. But through Israel's hardening, we we gather the benefits. We reap the benefits of that. And I think it's helpful to like to step back I, you you went over it before, but I just I just love just to step back and to look at what God's doing here, just big picture wise. So, if we if we take a step back and we notice that Israel, if we take a look at Israel's conceit. What did Israel have, or what did they obtain from God? God gave them the law. They, he gave them the patriarchs. He gave them the oracles of God. They had the prophets. They had the circumcision. They had the priesthood. They had all these things, um, and they were God's chosen race. And in that title, they took pride. And in their conceit, God still, and in their conceit, they rejected salvation through Christ. As they had all of those things, God graciously gave to them the law, the prophets, circumcision, all those things. They still rejected Christ. And in the same way, in Israel's hardening and in their unbelief, Paul warns the Gentiles, warns us not to fall into the same temptation, not to fall into the same um, sin of conceit and pride. So it's like on the one hand, as Israel's being hardened because of their conceit and their pride and their status as God's chosen race, Paul's like, don't go there. Uh, We see how it ends. Israel, I mean, take the kindness and the severity of God at face value. His own people have been hardened because of their conceit. And you think God will spare you 
because of your conceit, because he rejected his people to bring you in, that you're special, like Mr. Jerry said. There's no way. Note both the kindness of God and the severity of God. So I just, I like to just, just to step back and look at that again, because I think that is so, is so, I think it's so moving because God completely obliterates any notion of conceit among his people, and he completely incinerates any hint of it uh, among his children that he's chosen. So that means that there's absolutely no room for boasting. There's no room for condescension among the people of God. There's no, there's no room for condescension among the members of the family of God. Um, and it is only upon the platform of grace, grace alone, that we can even stand. So why should we ever look on anyone else in the family of God and who, who, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're from Siberia or South Africa or anywhere just because of their ethnicity or, or the way they were raised or something like that. If they're in Christ, there's no room for condescension. There's no room for conceit. And so in doing this, the Lord is fashioning for himself a bride, a bride for himself who's a bride that is characterized by humility and lowliness, who takes out a lot after her Savior, who's contrite of heart and is refined through fire and made pure from conceit. So his bride is not conceited at all. God just completely obliterates that by giving us an example in, in Israel, in his own people, and he also warns us not to fall into the same, into the same way of thinking. So just moving on to verse 26. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish, un- he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So in verse 26, when Paul says, and in this way, uh, what a group of Mr. Jerry here, they refers to the only means by which anyone is ever saved at any point in time, which is by grace through faith in Christ alone. And there's, I don't think we could waver an inch on that point at all. It, if anyone's going to be saved at any point in time, um, in any place, it's going to be through Christ and through Him alone because He is the only one who has made propitiation for sins. He is the only one who has satisfied the Father's wrath and has completely accomplished the work that is needed for us to stand before God and be justified. There's no other way, there's no other person through whom we must be saved than through Christ. And so the same, in the same way, all Israel will only be saved through Christ. No other way. It is only through Christ alone. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And because Mr. Jerry just went over quickly, all Israel, and I'm thankful you went over that. Um, it was really helpful. I'm just going to move on to the quote from Jeremiah and Isaiah. The deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them. I take away their sins. So here we, we see just, a, just evidence from God's word of the Old Testament, from Isaiah and Jeremiah. We see God's promises and how he will cause the hearts of his covenant people Israel to turn in repentance and faith, to turn away from their sins and to the Lord of glory for salvation. And the one thing I told Mr. Jerry was really interesting that I thought was really moving too is that the stunning similarities in how Christ deals with his people Israel, the ethnic, his ethnic covenant people of Israel, is very similar to the way that Joseph deals with his brothers in Genesis. I just, 
Um, I got this from a writer off of Monergism. I think it's really good. And I'm just going to read it really quickly so we can move on. Um, this is talking about Joseph in Genesis. And just listen for the similarities between um, Jesus and the way he treats Israel and Joseph, who is a type of Christ who was to come. Jealous of the dreamer in their midst, who has declared that he will one day rule over them, Joseph's brothers violently send him down to Egypt, where after a season of profound humiliation, he is exalted to the right hand of Pharaoh and made prince over all the land. At just the right time and by the good providence of God, Joseph's chastened and guilt-ridden brothers go down to Egypt themselves, hungry and seeking food. Concealing his true identity from them, he tests them sorely in order to elicit an honest confession of their sin. But then, with a startling display of deep emotion, he gladly makes himself known, assuring them of his love, forgiveness, and all the good things that the sovereign God has ever had in store for them. Without doubt, this is one of, the, this is one of Scripture's most elaborate and beautiful messianic types, picturing, as it does, Israel's rejection of Jesus Christ, their subsequent dispersion and descent into spiritual poverty his subsequent ascent to the right hand of the Father where he exercises great authority over the Gentile nations, and his ultimate reconciliation and reunion with the estranged sons of Israel, when, with a great show of love, at which all the Gentile world will marvel, he finally makes himself known to his brethren. So I just think the picture of Joseph finally just revealing himself to his brothers is just a picture of how glorious it's going to be when Christ reveals himself to his people in the end. Oh, it's really good. Thanks, Carter. Grant, anything you um, want to add there on uh, 26, 25, 26, 27? I don't think so. Okay, mm-hmm. good. There's two reasons then that, or I think very clear reasons here, that God says that he is going to restore Israel, verse 28 through 30, through 29 really, election. As regard to the gospel, they are enemies for your segment as regards election. They are beloved on the sake, uh, for the sake of their forefathers. For, I love this verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Oh, doesn't that remind you of three pages back, chapter 8? Um, ver- uh, the golden chain, for those whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that we might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those he predestined, he also called, and those who he called, he also justified. Everybody that's called is justified. And what we believe is that God has called, um, or will call, some Jews, um, ethnic Jews, uh, to be saved, and they will be. That's that in God's providence, he has foreknown, predestined, will call, justify, and glorify them. Those who are justified will be glorified. And so his call, um, his gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, I thought, thought it was pretty interesting. Arthur Pink said God is faithful in preserving, talking about gifts, preserving, discipling, and glorifying his people. There is so much... Um, to, to be said for that. And we talked about that a bunch in Romans 8. Um, you know, the security that we have in Christ. Secondly, so election in 28 and 29, two very clear reasons that the Jews are not beyond recovery. His mercy. 
I just don't think we can ever think enough of his mercy. Verse 30, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but have now received mercy because of their disobedience, right, for the Gentiles, um, or for us individually, we just think, uh, we don't have to think back very long to realize our disobedience, verse 31. So they too now have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Mercy is just a, again, something that we can't think often enough about. And now he launches in to this doxology. I've loved this doxology in just that um, it helps us to be God-centered in our thinking. The abundant Christian life given us in Christ, I think, is almost perfectly proportionate to how much we think in a God-centered way, which has got to be so much of our problem because we, we... lean toward being man-centered so naturally. Grant, tell us how, why you believe that Paul now just launches into this, which it almost seems like out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah. certainly it's it's not in one way. Tell us about what you're gathered here, because it's so good. And then we'll also talk about just where you see Scott's goodness, and I'd like to hear from you on that, where, where you see Scott's just tremendous story of God's grace involved there too. Okay. Yeah, because I think when I used to read this, I was, you read through 11 and then at, towards the end you're like, okay, now explain it simply, please, Paul. Like, just summarize it in black and white terms for me to understand, but he doesn't. And he breaks into a doxology. Um, and so the question would be, why does he do that here? Uh, Paul has described many amazing things, especially starting in chapter 3, culminating at chapter 8. Why was this doxology not located before the start of chapters 9 to 11? And so as, as I was thinking about it this week, so we see in chapters 9 to 11 the, how the wonders of chapter 8 are brought to different people in human history, what God did and what he says he will do. Paul has described God's sovereignty and election and reprobation of ethnic Israel. He grounds this in individuals, Jacob and Esau. I think we can never separate these large theological categories Uh, which is what we're tempted to do, from the wonders of the individuals it applies to. You can't separate the remnant from the example of 7,000 individual men that didn't bow the knee to Baal. And we also see that God brought in the Gentiles. And so whole groups of people are being brought into the people of God through the course of human history. And within these groups are many, many individual stories, people redeemed, people hardened. Uh, You can just take the genealogy of Christ, which I think Scott preached on an amazing sermon, just going back through that. But we can just take the genealogy of Christ uh, and be amazed at what took place so that Christ would be born of Mary. Uh, Just think about all the events that took place for Rahab, the prostitute, to be who she was and what happened to her. And then if we continue down, uh, one of my favorite books of the Bible is Ruth. Think about Boaz and Ruth. Boaz, a descendant of Rahab, and really just an unbelievable type of, of man, uh, God brought that about within a generation, two or three, probably two or three generations from, from Rahab, uh, bringing out of a prostitute this kinsman redeemer, Boaz, for the story of Ruth. It's just this amazing turn that takes place through human history. And then think about all the events in Ruth's life that shaped her the way she was, her parents, her life, her upbringing, her marriage to Naomi's son, the death of the husband's, 
the difference in Ruth and Orpah, the events that take place in the rest of the book of Ruth, the marriage, the birth of Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of King David, and generations later, the savior of the world. Just all that takes place that God is doing sovereignly, moving around nations to accomplish what he wants, and that's being described in 9 through 11. And then if we continue to think about that, we can think about it expanded out to so many more people. Uh, When we're talking about the inclusion of the Gentiles and God keeping a remnant of the Jews, it can be easy to read past those black and white categories without realizing the immense number of people that are experiencing their lives within those groups. Um, Think about all the things that had to take place in other people's lives and your life for you to be here right now, to be at North Avenue. None of that was random or from chance. All was under the sway of a sovereign, all-knowing, all-wise, all-powerful God. We frequently don't think generationally like that, where events that seem random to us affect three or four generations down the road. I've heard one person say, God has genealogies of ants that goes back thousands and thousands of years, all under his sovereign control. What Paul is describing in chapters 9 through 11 is massive in terms of scale, unfathomable for us to think about what all is taking place when Jews are hardened, a remnant is kept, and Gentiles are grafted in. And that sentence right there, the Gentiles grafted in, encompasses us. There is a gospel genealogy that traces all the way back through the church history um, and to, to us sitting here today. Somehow we heard of Christ, and that continues all the way back um, through church history. It's amazing to think about the complexity that took place just for us to sit in this very room and to be a Christian today. And I think that is getting just the taste of it described in chapters 9 through 11, But not only is it amazing, uh, it can be confusing for people like us. The hardening of the Jews to bring in the Gentiles, using the inclusion of the Gentiles to make the Jews jealous, thus bringing them in again in the future, it it doesn't really make sense to us. We don't understand why it has to be that way. We wouldn't have thought of it that way. We wouldn't have done it that way. Um, There can be this temptation to expect Paul to sum it up in a way, uh, in a few succinct sentences that are black and white, straightforward for our finite brains, but he does not. Uh, The scale of what is taking place, I think, probably precludes that. Think about the whole book of Acts is described um, as describing the beginning of the the inclusion of the Gentiles. And that is just the beginning. And think about the big difference between, oh, as an aside, I think there is a big difference between trying to figure out how something works and still not understanding it, but then just trying and trying to try to understand it with increasing knowledge and then not understanding something. Um and trying to say, because we don't understand it, it must be wrong. Um, Because it wasn't explained to us in a certain way, and we can't know every detail of how it works, and therefore uh, we become self-conscious about it. I think that can be a temptation for Christians, that if something's inexplicable, we become self-conscious to those who we're explaining it to. And if you just take an example, this is just a little rabbit trail. Um, No scientist does that. They glory in the unexplainable. Their whole job is to try to figure out and glory in the complexity and beauty of the vastness of the known universe. They don't fall apart, and science isn't undone because they don't know how something works. Paul sees the vastness of what he has just stated and breaks into praise of the one who is doing all this. God is doing the inexplainable to our brains. Uh, and for us, we, we, we love the man who is unorthodox and sees a path no one else could have seen and does something to solve the problem that seemed impossible and save the day. That's like every... Uh, Tom Cruise movie that's ever been made. That's like always the person we want to be like in Hollywood is the one that can see what seems unexplainable and save the day. But when it comes to God, 
we tend to put him on trial when we don't understand how or why he's doing something. Mm. And I think here is a good time. Um, I have more for the rest of the doxology, but I, I just can't help but think about Scott here. Oh, yeah. Like um, that, that phrase that he says about no, if he knew the end from the beginning, he would do it that way. Um, I don't know. Maybe we can stop and just and talk about Scott because I think the principle is, is the same. Um, something inexplicable, Paul launches into a doxology and a praise of God and his attributes and wanting all glory to be given to God. Something just unexplainable happening to Scott, he does the exact same thing. He, he praises God on Thursday night, wants all glory to be pointed to God, even through something that is maybe not understandable, and says that if he knew as well as God knew, he would pick the same thing, which I, that sentence blew me away. Yeah. You know, I, I love what Grant said. He said, this is kind of the stuff you read uh, in church history. That someone makes that statement and you marvel at it. But he, to hear, I think the Elizabeth Elliot quote and hear how Scott has uh, adopted that in, in his scene. And, it, and as you're talking about this, and really want to hear from Thursday what, especially in relationship here to the um, doxology. But, but Carter, I just think about yours, God using um, a group of guys that need a Bible study. Josh being able to teach bro Bible, you come to love and know Christ, and and now being able to sit with us and teach the word grant. I think about your tennis pro buddy Wes bringing you <laughs> to Westminster, and then sure enough, you hear the gospel and are convicted. And wait a second here, I need this. I say, Caitlin and Zach, what in the world? You know, you just think about your back at your, and you say how God orchestrates all of these. Elizabeth in Maine, you're. A maniac like Papa calls you, um, you know, just to go, hey, what a glorious, you could talk hours, couldn't you, about how God was orchestrating this and this and this person and this person and this, oh, I hear this, this is interesting, and you saw, I remember you saying that you even, wait, all of what I'm seeing, there's something I'm missing. Like, there, you always had that thought. Wait, is, there's got to be more here, you know? And, and I'm sure for the rest of all of us, there's this great... What do you see or heard, maybe heard Thursday or just have recognized in Scott that you appreciate when you think about the <clears throat> doxology here? He allowed the full weight of everything to... He, like, he didn't try to suppress truth or didn't try or how like he he took that the fullness of that suffering um when he mentioned that he just fell and wept i'm just like you you're still praising god you still have joy but you are not suppressing just how hard this trial is sorrowful yet always rejoicing i loved boy from the beginning when um liliana was in the hospital i remember that scott talking about that verse so good. Yep. Really good. Caitlin, I love it when Grant talks about scientists. What would you say from Scott and Zach? What really stood out, all of the things that have been said so far um, were very impactful, but the thing that sticks out to me most is Michael and the incidents on the stairs where Michael was just like inconsolable and he 
recognized his inability to do anything, and so he just like earnestly sought God. Yeah. Um, and God is faithful to give us what we need, and in that moment, he needed to bring peace to Michael. And yeah. Then they had a sweet moment of just like being in the stillness of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's so good. How many times have I run to all kinds of other things? Tried to figure things out. Grant, that's what hits me when you talk about this. We try to figure out, oh, wait a second, I don't, I, instead of just trusting, trusting what we don't know and trusting that he's doing not, how many times has Scott said that he's sovereign and he's good? He's doing the right thing, and we can know that and we can trust that. Jesse. Yes, sir. Uh Another thing, too, uh, there's tons of stuff that happens that, to most of us, doesn't make sense. But I like to think of it as everything making sense in light of the fact that God has the big picture. That's right. Really good. Everything makes sense in that view. God has the big picture. And we, not only do we not have the big picture, I don't even think we have the ability to have the big picture. You know, we just, we just don't know. Someone said, we have a worm's eye view and God has a bird's eye view. You know, it's just like we got the grass in our way. We can't see our way out of a wet paper bag. And God knows all of what's happening and going to orchestrate it. And that's the Romans eight twenty eight of all of this is just so good. My students this week, we're finally in Romans 8. We'll be there for two months. But it is so, January and February are some of my favorite months because they start camping on this and they start thinking about it and they start talking about all the sins. Think about the sins that we would not commit if we really trusted 33, 34, 35, 36. Love to hear your guys' thoughts, but even if we start breaking them, apart one verse at a time here oh the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of god and that just you put those all together his riches his wisdom his knowledge how unsearchable his judgments and how inscrutable his ways and and paul is just launching into this saying we cannot grant i love the way you put it we cannot become stymied because we don't understand things we don't understand the, the trinity we believe it. We don't understand how God can be 100%. Jesus was 100% truly man and truly God. And we believe that. We trust that. Because that's in scripture. And so don't be hung up by what we can't um, understand. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Obviously, the answer there is nobody. Right? And yet, how many days? In fact, probably all the days. I try to counsel God. Like, wait a second here. Every time we complain, are we not counseling God and saying, God, if you really knew better, you would have done this. The weather would be different. Well, God runs the weather. I don't run the weather, and I don't want to run the weather, really, honestly. But why do I gripe about things? You know, whatever it would be, when we complain, I feel like we're, we're in a way, counseling God. Let's not do that. We don't have to complain. We don't have to. I, oh, it was remarkable. As uh, um, one this week, our head of school, his parents 
were in a horrible car accident where a drunk driver came across. He, they came over a hill. They're 79, 78 years old. They came over a hill. Some, a drunk driver met them head on, and both of them are in the hospital and in, look like they're going to make it, but just broken bones and just uh, would have been a head-on collision, you know, going whatever, 40, 50 each of them. And so kind of remarkable that they live, but one of the students just talking about Romans eight twenty eight said, it gives the Clark family the freedom to forgive the drunk driver. Why? Because God's sovereign. God's sovereign in what he does. What, any thoughts on, on that, you guys or anybody here, when you think about counseling God for 35 yet, um, who has given a gift that he might be repaid? Does God owe us anything? Don't we maybe go about life thinking that with a little bit of entitlement? Any thoughts on, on when you start breaking down this doxology? Can I go back to knowledge? Yeah, I want to yeah. hear it. Because that's what Paul, he starts with the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And so I just want to make a quick little comment on, on, on God's knowledge, thinking about all that he has done through history, just raising up empires to punish Israel, just what he's doing through human history is just is mind-blowing. Um, but Paul starts by praising God's knowledge, the depth of God's knowledge. And I think we should battle as we read Scripture to make sure our thoughts of God are not too small and that they're not too human. That's something that Luther wrote in rebuke to someone else. He said, I think, my friend, your thoughts of God are too altogether too human. And as an aside, I, I do not know of anything more powerful for spiritual lethargy than thinking on the attributes of God. I think if you start with one of those attributes and then move on from there to the gospel, that's a one-two combo for spiritual dryness unlike anything that I know of. And we can just rinse and repeat that. But John Calvin pointed it out this way. Uh, God, God condescends to communicate with us in ways that we can understand him, much as a parent will speak in very basic ways to a young child's so to enable the child to understand truly, but not totally. This is how God communicates with us about himself. And so one other person said it this way about God's knowledge. It's absolutely perfect. God cannot learn. Could God at any time or in any manner receive into his mind knowledge that he did not possess and has not possessed from eternity, he would be imperfect and less than himself. To think of a God who must sit at the feet of a teacher, even though that teacher be an archangel or a seraph, is to think of someone other than the Most High God, maker of heaven and earth. God knows instantly and effortlessly all matter and all matters, all mind and every mind, all spirit and all spirits, all being and every being, all creaturehood and all creatures, every plurality and all pluralities, all law and every law, all relations, all causes, all thoughts, all mysteries, all enigmas, all feeling and all desires, every unuttered secret, all thrones and dominions, all personalities, all things visible and invisible in heaven and earth, motion, space, time, life, death, good, evil, heaven, and hell. Because God knows all things perfectly, he knows not, no thing better than another thing, but all things equally well. He never discovers anything. He is never dis- surprised, never amazed. He never wonders about anything nor except when drawing men out for their own good does he seek information or ask questions. That quote um, deeply impacted me to think about that. And uh, Boyce said it this way, this level of knowledge can be disturbing. Um, It's why many 
do not want to think of God as he is. They make a God totally different in their own image. Um, he knows absolutely everything. And Boyce says that should humble us. And I also think it should affect how we pray. Nothing is hidden, uh, not even motive. Walls don't hide anything. Distance hides nothing. Your skull hides nothing. Circumstances hide nothing. We must be totally honest in our prayers with him. This attribute of God should humble and comfort us, especially in prayer. He is not updated on a situation when we tell him about it. He knows all at all times from eternity past. We cannot even begin to fathom a being like that. It's just unbelievable to think about the knowledge of God. Mm -hmm. No, really good. Anything on that last? We certainly 36 to close on him getting the glory. 34, 35? Uh, yeah, I can just do a couple of extra things um, relating to God's wisdom. J.I. Packer put, had an interesting thought tying wisdom to goodness. Wisdom is the power to see and the inclination to choose the best and highest goal together with the surest means of attaining it. Wisdom is, in fact, the practical side of moral goodness. As such, it's found in its fullness only in God. He alone is naturally and entirely and invariably wise, meaning he's also good. I think about that with Scott, how Scott refused to say anything other than God was doing the best thing and was being uh, doing good. And the wisdom of God is how we have the gospel. We would have never come up with something like that. Yeah. Who would have thought of that course for human history to redeem humanity was the death of God's own son. And my, my last thought for this is uh, God is eternal, no beginning and no end. All things are from him and to him. I'm trying to put it this way. God is the one who gives all things to us not the one who receives benefit from human hands. Not only is God the source of all things and the means by which all things are accomplished, but he is also the goal of all things. The purpose for which the world was created is God's glory. God has arranged salvation history to bring maximum glory to himself. So the proper summary of this in response is desire, to desire that all glory be to him forever. And the amen at the end of this shows that Paul's intense wish that God's purpose to receive glory and praise will be realized. That's great. I imagine Josh is going to have some stuff for us next week on this. But um, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Carter, could you thank the Lord for us? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness to us in every way and in all circumstances. We're thankful for your faithfulness to our church and to Scott. Thank you for the work that you have done in him. Thank you for uh, all, the, the, all the glorious ways in which you have made your name known among those who we may not perhaps know and among us all here, Father, I pray you would help us to grow together in our love for you and our love for one another. Help us to grow in our wonder of who you are. Father, I pray that we would seek your glory above all things. Even though we cannot completely understand, Father, I pray that we would love you and that we would seek your glory. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Thank you. Meditate on that this week. <laughs>